0: Listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit SouthPoint.org. All right, so, John, we're going to be looking at chapter eight this morning. And so if you, if you look at John chapter 7, all the way from chapter 7, the very beginning of chapter 7, through John chapter 10, it's one long uh, narrative, it's one story, chronological events that are happening, and there are these dialogues, these conversations that are happening all throughout Jesus with the crowds, with his disciples, all happening from chapter 7 through chapter 10. And we see the very beginning of chapter 7. We see, and by the way, we're in these seven I am statements of Jesus. And so if you're new here, if you're like, hey, why is he jump, jumping in straight into John chapter 8? It's because we're looking at the seven I am statements of Jesus from the book of John. And so if, as we see here, the beginning of chapter 7, if you go back and look, it's the beginning of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, which is when the people would celebrate when they came out of Egypt and they were wandering in the desert Right before they were wandering in between Egypt and wandering in the desert, they came out of Egypt with the exodus, and they came into freedom. And during that time, as they were uh, heading toward the promised land, supposedly, uh, which was going to happen a long ways off, they were actually staying sleeping in tents, as they would there in the wilderness. And so the Feast of Booths, or tabernacles, is when they, were, they would actually gather together in Jerusalem, and they would sleep in tents together. So think Coachella or Woodstock. Uh, And so they're out there sleeping together and it's a celebration every single year they would get together as a remembrance of Jesus, of God, bringing them out of captivity into freedom. And so this is the context. And what they would do is they would actually set up this giant candelabra that you could see for miles away as a representation. Remember how God was leading them uh, from Egypt? Remember what he led them with? Anybody know? Fire. And what else? Yeah, smoke and fire, right? A cloud. And so they would set this up as a reminder of the light of God that you could see that was leading us. Then we get to chapter 8. So look here at chapter 8 with me, if you would. John chapter 8. We're going to jump right into verse number 12. So that's the context of John 8. Notice what Jesus says. So we have this picture of the light of the world leading his people out from captivity from Egypt. And then in chapter 8 and verse number 12, Jesus says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So here's the first question I want us to ask. Well, before we do, here's what the people, when they heard Jesus say this, him talking about light, here are a couple of things that they would have been reminded of. They've been reminded of Isaiah chapter 49. It says this in verse 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Now listen, the context of this chapter is a promised Messiah. So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's saying, I am the Messiah. I am God. This is me. I am showing up. The Old Testament smoke and fire, it was pointing to me. Now I am here Notice, I will make you as a light for the nations, talking about Jesus, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. They were reminded of Psalm chapter 27, verse 1. It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom then shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And here, if we look back at Exodus, here's the context. They would have recognized this in chapter 14. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So we have here Jesus. The context is this, this feast of tabernacles, this feast of booths. They're all around in tents celebrating Exodus 14, and Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So the first question we need to ask is, why does the light need to come? Why does the light need to be there? And we would all say, well, that's that's pretty obvious because it's dark. Like you walk into a room that's dark and what do you do? You turn on the light so that you can see. The, the issue, the problem with many of us today is we become so accustomed to the darkness that we don't realize how much we need Jesus as our light. You ever walk into a movie theater um, and you get so accustomed to the darkness. And maybe if you're like me, if you're cheap, you go with the matinee, right? Because it's, you know, like 45 cents cheaper. So it's only $17 per person. And you, you go in and you walk out and the sun is still up. And as soon as you walk out of the theater, there are no windows in there, obviously. You don't see, you know, the front lobby area. But if you walk out of the theater and as soon as you walk outside, what do you do? Boom, you get hit with the sunlight. It's like, oh man, I didn't realize how dark the theater was. That's what he's saying here. I had to come because you did not realize that the darkness had overcome you. And for so many of us, we don't understand how dark, how darkened our hearts are. And we can look around at the culture. We can, uh, we can look at ourselves, and we can look at the culture that we have really become a part of. And we are no longer the light of the world or the salt of the earth, like, Matthew t- uh, like Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5. But instead, we've joined the world in celebrating darkness. Just think about the things that our world celebrates with parades, with hashtags. The things that we often celebrate are the things for which we should be repenting. And so, in a world that says your wealth, power, authority, your success, your autonomy is the ultimate good, Jesus steps in and says, I'm actually going to set the foundation of a blood stained path. And I'm going to say that I am deity, I am the light of the world, I am God in flesh follow me down this path and you will have life. We're gonna see this over and over, but here's what I want you to take away, if nothing else this morning, is that Jesus gave up heaven to give us heaven. He steps into a world where we celebrate power and authority and autonomy and success and wealth and all these different things. And he says, the way that I'm laying down before you when I say, come and follow me, is one of sacrifice. Now notice, we're going to, I just want us to flip through this chapter. And I want us to see how the Pharisees, how they don't get it. Look at how they respond in verse number 13. So we're going to, I want us to kind of just go through this chapter kind of quickly or the first several verses, and we're going to see how the Pharisees respond. And then I want us to see what Jesus is trying to teach us, even in the midst of that poor response this morning. Verse 13, so the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They call Jesus a liar. Verse number 15, you judge according to the flesh. This is Jesus responding. You judge according to the flesh. Talk about the Pharisees. I judge no one. That's not the reason he came the first time. Verse number 19. They said to him, therefore, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Look at verse 23. He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. So notice, as Jesus is setting that up, he's saying there are two realities. One is a spiritual reality. One is a physical reality. He's saying, I am looking at the heart. I know what you value. I know the darkness of your heart. You're looking simply at the outward appearance. You don't even know the the realm, the world that I'm speaking of. He says, you're from here. You're just looking at the outside. Look at verse number 25. So they said to him, okay, so who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. You would have thought these guys would have just stepped in and seen Jesus for the very first time. They've been listening to him teaching. Over and over, he said, I am the Christ. I am God in flesh. I am deity. And they continue to try to trip him up. Verse 27, verse 27, They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the father. The whole time Jesus is sitting here talking about, no, I've come to do my father's will. You don't understand this relationship. This is in the spiritual realm. You have no context for this because you're blind. You are in darkness. In fact, if you notice the Pharisees, not only are they in darkness, but they're also blind. So double darkness. So the light steps in to illuminate and they can't even see it because their eyes have not been opened, because their ears have not been opened. They cannot hear the truth. So the light is there and they don't even respond. So I think at this point, we can actually look at the disciples, sorry, the Pharisees and say, yeah, but Jesus is speaking in riddles. Like, can we really blame them for not knowing what he's talking about? Of course they didn't believe. Look at verse number 30 with me. Verse number 30 says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Many believed in him. How does salvation come? Through the power of the spirit. Jesus could not convince the Pharisees that he was the light of the world. He simply said, I am the light of the world. Relinquish every other worldview. Take hold of me. Here's the second thing that I want to see this morning is that it is not that our minds don't understand who Jesus is. The Pharisees understood as much about Jesus as anybody else. They had Old Testament books of the Bible. Old Testament, right? If I said, i want to challenge you over the next, the rest of this year to, to, to memorize a book of the Bible, you'd be like, all right, which one's the shortest? <laughs> you know, maybe Jude, Third John, you're feeling really squirrely, like Philemon. You know what I mean? They had Old Testament books of the Bible memorized, the boring ones. It wasn't that they didn't understand who Jesus was; it's that their hearts, like ours, our hearts don't love who Jesus is. Our hearts don't love who Jesus is. Here's the human dilemma. The dilemma for all of humanity is that we were created to know God, to be in relationship with God, to love God, to be in right communion with him. And back in Genesis chapter 3, we rebelled against him. And now every false religion, every false well Every religion and every false worldview is like this futile maze. And every time you go around a corner, there's no end to this maze. Around every single corner, there's a sign that says, dead end. And they're like, okay, let me see if I can find something else. Around the next corner, dead end. Okay, let me try something else. Around the next one, dead end. That's the human dilemma that we find ourselves in. We are hopeless without our eyes being opened, without the light coming down and illuminating himself to us. But here's the good news of the gospel, is that even in the midst of that futile maze that we call religion and false worldview, Jesus lived perfectly while on this earth. He died cruelly at the hands of sinners, and he rose victoriously so that we could know heaven. Amen? That's the hope that we have. The difference between heaven and hell, if you look back, so we saw the Pharisees' response. Look back at verse number 24 with me. Notice here, this beautiful word, unless. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless, unless you believe in me, that I am he, you will die in your sins. The only thing that the world has to offer us, every single religion, every single worldview is death. Death. That's it. There is no life. There is no hope. It is only darkness. And Jesus says here, unless you believe in me, John chapter 15 and verse number 13 later, Jesus says this, greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. That's a love that the Pharisees can't even understand. They don't know anything about this love. They're only looking at the flesh. They're only looking at the outward appearance. But here's what Jesus Christ is continuing to demonstrate: is that he gave up heaven to give us heaven. That's what he, he's continuing to tell us over and over and over again. You see, humanism, if you want to take that as a false worldview, humanism has no place for self-sacrifice. Darwinism, natural selection, survival of the fittest. You can go, I was reading some of Darwin's writings this week, thinking about what does he have to say about sacrifice? Darwin actually says that there is no place for someone being a hero, there's no place for heroics because there is no place for sacrifice. It doesn't make sense. Without our eyes being opened, illuminated by who Jesus Christ is, by the power of the Spirit. It makes no sense, no logical sense that anyone would want to lay down his life for anybody else. There is no mercy. There is no sacrifice. But here's the next thing that I want to see is that the glory of Jesus is clearly displayed on the cross. He says, the life that I am inviting you into is an invitation into sacrifice. It's one into true love. It's one into true mercy. And when we see Jesus Christ on the cross, it illuminates our hearts to two things. First of all, our brokenness. Man, God had to come down and live perfectly for 33 and a half years. Then he had to be put to death for us. That's how jacked up we are. That's how broken we are. That's how much nothing else will work. It shows us our brokenness. But secondly, it reveals to us our desperate need for his grace and for his glory. The cross reveals that to us. And as we look at, if we look at chapter nine here, chapter nine is a a beautiful depiction of this truth in action. If you look at the beginning of chapter 9, this is still part of the same narrative just a a few minutes later. Uh, And there's this guy named Blind Bartimaeus. I think it's Matthew's Gospel who actually references uh, this man's name here. Uh, John doesn't actually reference his name, but it's the same story. And so we'll call him Blind Bart. So here's what I want us to see is the story of Blind Bart. The application of Jesus as the light of the world. Look at verse number 5. So this blind man comes to him. Jesus says, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. This is Jesus. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So we have this blind man as Jesus is walking, and during this time of festival, during this time of partying, it's when these blind folks, those who are disabled, would be uh, around the roads, and they'd be like, man, this is a good time for us to get some extra alms, get some extra money from folks because there are more people there in the city. But with more people there in the city, can you imagine saying to this blind man, I want you to go between a half a mile and a mile away to the pool of Siloam? yeah, I'm gonna put this mud on your eyes so not only can you not see, which is already bad enough, but now you look like a zombie. Now I want you to go walk a mile over to the pool of Siloam with tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people there in Jerusalem. And so we have blind bar who says, all right, well, I guess that's what I'm gonna do. So he goes stumbling, wandering around, probably asking directions to get over to the pool of Siloam. Notice that Jesus here doesn't just look at him and say, boom, your sight is back. Jesus sends blind Bart on a journey. Could Jesus have healed him immediately? Absolutely, absolutely. He could have spoken eyesight to blind Bart, but why doesn't he? We, we could come up with a bunch of different answers. I don't exactly know why Jesus decided to do that, but here's what I do know. Is that blind Bart acquired sight? He got his sight back by holding on to the words of Jesus and by obeying him immediately. He held on to the words of Jesus and he obeyed him immediately. He he didn't know for sure that this was going to work. But he said, Man, I'm gonna have faith for one step at a time. One step at a time, he makes it to the pool of Siloam. Psalm chapter 119, I think it's verse number 105. It says, your word is a light unto my feet, a lamp unto my path. How far does that light or that lamp go? Not very far. It doesn't say you're a set of headlights, LED headlights with extra ones on the roof. No, he says, it's a light unto my feet. I just need to take the right next step. Often following Jesus. Means taking that next step. Not knowing for sure if it's going to work, but knowing that with him there is life, there is light, and you get his presence. That's what Blind Bart experienced here, and then he became a walking billboard of Jesus' power, of Jesus' authority, and of Jesus' grace. We can pick up that story in verse number 13. Notice how the Pharisees react. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. There's his first mistake. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, talking to blind Bart. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, but he does not because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So we see here, the Pharisees, they cannot even see past their rules, the rules that they had set up for themselves. They said, here's what it means to be successful. They couldn't see past it. Look at verse number 24 with me, if you would. Verse 24, so for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. So don't give glory to this man, Jesus. He's a sinner, supposedly. No, give glory to God. Verse 25, he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? So again, Blind Bart answers them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Notice what he says. I I, I notice a a hint of, of sarcasm here. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I think that's just funny there. He's like, Dude, isn't this awesome? Look at what Jesus has done. He, he, yeah, he spat on the ground. He gave me, he rubbed some mud in my eyes. I went and washed it off and now I can see. They're like, no, 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 but but for real, how, do you, how are you actually seeing now? Because you used to be blind. He said, like, I've told you. Okay, we'll give you one more chance. So why did you actually, here, do you want to follow him too? Look how awesome this guy is. Look how awesome following Jesus is. They don't get it, man. They couldn't see past their own rules, religion, the things that they wanted to be in control of. Verse 28, and they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, Jesus, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard uh, that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Blind Bart, he doesn't have all of the education. He doesn't have all of the degrees. He doesn't have all the power. He doesn't have all the money that these religious folks have. He's like, yeah, I don't know much about Jesus, but I know he opened my eyes. I couldn't couldn't beat you at, you know, Bible trivia. I couldn't tell you all the chapters and verses, all the references of this, but he opened my eyes. I know he does this. I have seen him. They answered him, the Pharisees. You were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. They can't handle any anything contrary to the narrative that they've set up with them being in control of that narrative. Notice how this story ends. And we'll finish here, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Blind Bart answered him, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Now you may be thinking, well, Blind Bart, you just had your sight restored from Jesus. Now you're asking who Jesus is? But notice, had Blind Bart ever seen Jesus before? He had never seen him because he was blind. So then Jesus walks back up to him and says, hey, do you want to believe in the son of man? Blind boy, it's like, man, I would love to. I don't even know what he looks like though. Jesus said to him, verse 37, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world and those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Notice the irony here is that the blind could see through faith. Blind Bart gained his sight through having faith in the power, the healing power of Jesus. I lost my spot. Verse 39, for judgment I came to the world and those who see me become blind. Verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? The Pharisees are not asking this question as like, oh no, oh no, have mercy on me, oh Lord. Are we also blind? No, they're saying, all right, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool. Yeah, we gotta have faith. Yeah, but we follow Moses. Are you saying we're also blind? Jesus says to them in verse 41, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. In other words, you think you've got everything figured out, that you don't need faith in God. You think that you can earn the righteousness and right standing before God the Father without following this blood-stained path of Jesus. You say, oh yeah, I got this figured out, I can see this. And therefore, you are spiritually blind. With physical eyes you see. Everything makes sense. I'm in control of all these things. He says, because of that, spiritually, you cannot see. The ones who claimed to see, they were in utter darkness. They were in utter darkness. Here's how we know that. Here's the basis of our faith, is that on the cross, the light was placed in darkness, the light of the world. Friend, listen, I said this twice already, but Jesus gave up heaven to give us heaven. The light was placed in utter darkness to identify with us in the depth of our separation from God. God the Father turned his back on God the Son, because he was taking on our penalty, our punishment. But listen, three days later, the light got back up out of the darkness. And he said, I had defeated darkness. I've defeated death. I've defeated hell. I've defeated the enemy. And now I'm pulling you saying, hey, you don't have to be in darkness anymore. You don't have to be surrounded by death. I want to offer you life. I want to offer you life. So here are three questions I want us to finish with. First of all, with spiritual life, who are you trusting? Who are you trusting? Jesus Christ has done what's necessary to earn your trust. But I cannot convince you with enough words, with enough rhetoric, with enough homiletical prowess, even that even if I owned it, which that was pretty close, but even if I owned any sort of homiletical prowess, I could not talk you into or convince you that Jesus Christ had done enough to earn your trust but you are placing that trust somewhere. To trust in Jesus, it means not trusting anything else. Secondly, I would ask you this, dear believer, what ways am I not fully committing myself or entrusting myself to Jesus? What are the areas of your life, of your darkened heart, that need the light of Christ to show up and to reveal those areas? Thirdly, is there something that you are doing, that you are thinking, or pursuing that won't be in the presence of God in heaven? Is there something that you are thinking, doing, or pursuing that won't be in the presence of God in heaven? Friend, Jesus came from heaven to shed light on those areas of sin. And as he does that, I would plead with you to repent of those areas. Bring those things into the light. Experience life this morning. Jesus is the light of the world. We're gonna celebrate his, this light. This morning we have bread that has been cut up, it represents the broken body of Jesus. It stepped into darkness. For us, it was broken so that we could be made whole. His blood was shed so that we could be covered in his righteousness. In the same way that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree, their eyes were opened. Remember what God said if you eat the fruit of this tree, then your eyes will be opened to good and evil. Their eyes were not opened to what was good, they already knew God. Their eyes were opened to darkness. And Jesus took the wrath and overcame the darkness for us. On the cross, he died the death that each one of us deserves to die. But then he rose victorious so that we could experience life. And I would plead with you this morning to fall upon the mercy of God. Don't rely on lesser lights, don't rely on the things that this world celebrates, but respond in obedience and in faith place your trust in Jesus Christ. He alone will offer you life. If you've done that this morning, if you are pursuing Jesus, if you desire to pursue him greater, then this meal is for you. Let's experience the forgiveness and the presence of Christ together.